Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Empowered Living. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 23, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Power. As I began this series on the book of Ephesians, I had already made mention of the fact that the ancient city of Ephesus was an impressive city indeed. It was the third most important city in the Roman Empire. It was wealthy. It was powerful. The city had a great many temples, great many gods and goddesses. Religious pluralism filled the city. I'd also make mention of the likely probability that Paul intended his Ephesian letter not to be just for the Ephesian Christians, but it was also intended to be read in the nearby cities, cities over which Ephesus had a great deal of influence. So the letter to the Ephesians is a kind of an encyclical. It was meant to be read among Ephesian Christians first, then passed around to the churches in the surrounding cities. I return to that theme here because all these Christians in this area would have been converted to Christ out of a pagan religious background that was part of the fabric of the wider culture of Asia Minor. So I would assume that some of the converts to Christ in that area would have come from a background of the magic arts. Still others would have belonged to the Artemis cult or the Diana cult, the goddess of fertility. Others came from other religions, including among them would have been those with a strong astrological belief system that the planets dictated their lives. And I mention this because there's a stream of thinking that runs through all these religious belief systems. It has to do with a fear that many people had of hostile spiritual powers that might threaten their existence. Somehow these hostile spirits needed to be placated lest they inflict harm on people. Again, I bring this up now because we're doing a study of Ephesians 1, 18 to 23, in which the words rule and authority and power and dominion are going to come up. Put all those words into one sentence and the believers of that time period would have sat up. Did the gospel of Jesus have something to say to the powers of the gods, the powers of nefarious forces in heavenly realms, and the incantations that were constantly required to ward off evil? Was there a Christian response to living in a world where one never knew what trickery might come from the gods of the next world? Now, it's very easy for us who live in the materialistic and scientific world to look back on those primitive times, you know, when things that can now be explained through science seem magical to them. Oh, how ignorant they were back then, we say. You know, nothing that they feared was really out there. You know, as one secular observer said, all the demons and God simply disappeared when we invented electric lights and proved there was nothing in the dark after all. You know, to those who think there are no spiritual powers out there to fear, I would think that the world today is even more terrifying than the ancients thought it would be. Read about where many people think technology is going. And we'll hear of people talking about technology that will track every single person on earth, monitor all of our behavior. Individual privacy is coming to an end, warn the experts. And those who have power, yeah, power is the operative word. Those who have power will be able to control every aspect of our lives, including who we associate with, what we buy, who we vote for, what attitudes we have, whether or not we're supposed to be included into society and what we're allowed to believe in, how we choose to entertain ourselves. That's power the ancients never considered. And furthermore, our technology keeps pushing us to greater conflict with other world powers. You know, what will come of them? Fear permeates. 
And there are those who say all that technology we've harnessed is threatening the world's atmosphere and tilting us towards global destruction. See, don't you see? We shouldn't mock the ancient world's concerns over powers they struggle to control and the power that could destroy them. Now, I want to say that the ancients really did understand what we don't, that there really are demonic spirits in the world, and many feared that power. But our world is afraid there are no powers to appease. Rather, that power is being activated as if on an uncontrollable and unstoppable runaway train. And the collision, even if it's not now, is eventually going to take place. See, what I'm trying to say is that everyone fears the powers. But Ephesians, this wonderful book, is all about our resources in Christ. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The greatest challenge the believer of any era faces is that we might have the eyes to see the glory of the God who blesses us. Now, let's read today's text. I am, as it were, starting halfway through a sentence. Paul's been praying for the receivers of his letter that we might receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God the Father. That's where we pick up, Ephesians 1, 18 to 23. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I wonder if you noticed the word power and all those synonyms for power, rule, authority, dominion. And when it comes to power, Paul not only speaks of our Lord's power, but he speaks of the greatness of his power. But even that, he's not content with those words. He speaks of the immeasurable greatness of his power. That is to say, there's no human or spiritual measure of God's power. See, that's because any measurement not only states the extent of the thing being measured, any measurement also speaks of the limitations of the thing being measured. Not in the case of God. Paul wants to say there are no limitations to his power. Very well, let's begin where we left off last time. Paul's praying that the eyes of the hearts of his hearers might be enlightened. He wants them to fully realize their spiritual resources. At first, he says, he wants them to know the hope to which they have been called. See, understand, he says, that your future is not uncertain, not at all. Know what your future holds. Remember that a world that fears nefarious power is a world that is uncertain about the future. Well, for the ancients, they wanted to know what evil spiritual forces are arrayed against us. For moderns, where's the world going? What are the powers in high places planning? But for those who are believers, whose hearts are enlightened, they have eyes to see the glorious, the joyful, the fulfilling future that God has planned for us. And then Paul adds still in verse 18, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And there are two ways of interpreting that text. The Greek language leaves us with two possibilities. The passage could be saying that we are God's inheritance. That is to say, God's calling on our lives were such that he would inherit us as his reward. You know, if that is how the text is translated, it would speak about how delighted God is with us. But the text most likely means to teach that God has given us an inheritance. That is, God is promising us something in the future. 
I want you to imagine that you receive a letter in the mail tomorrow, and it's from a well-known and reputable law firm. It's officially sealed. It bears all the marks of an important document. The letter tells you that you were really adopted and that your father is actually one of the world's richest men. Furthermore, your father wants to include you into his family. All that your father has will be inherited by you. So how do you feel? Well, some of you would, first of all, faint and then pick yourself up and immediately go out and spend all your life savings. I mean, after all, you're now secure. But what if I told you that all of that's true? You were really adopted by a father in heaven whose wealth far exceeds that of earthly, wealthy entrepreneurs, even the best of them. Each one of us has an inheritance. If you look ahead to Ephesians chapter 2, go down all the way to verse 7, and you'll notice that Paul is speaking about the immeasurable riches of his grace. Again, the word is immeasurable. You know, you can't put a number on God's riches, but they are yours. Now go to verse 19a. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Again, the word is there. I hope you saw it, immeasurable. Not only is it true that there is no power on earth or in heavenly places that can compare to God's power, but it's not possible to quantify such a vast, limitless power of God. It's an incomparably great power. The use of the word power here, that's also stunning. It comes from the Greek word dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite. And it's a word which really speaks of raw power, brute strength, unstoppable power. The significance here is that if the Ephesian Christians were afraid of the powers of the unseen realm, where the gods and the demons operated, well, they needn't have ever feared. Because not only is God's power great beyond measure, but that power is directed towards those of us who believe. That is, that great power is on your side. He's always ready to direct his power to deliver his people. Dear Christian friend, are you living in fear? Why? One of our listeners wrote to say, this message captures the heart of our awesome God. Thank you so much for this truth, Pastor John. I love the passion you display in expounding God's word with truth and humility. Feedback like this lets us know that the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are hitting the mark. With God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching and engagement using every effective medium at our disposal. Our special thanks to all those who listen, watch, read, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement and commitment to Bible teaching is essential. Please continue to stand with us with your prayers and support. You can join us in this effort with your financial gift by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I remember in the days when I was in a university philosophy class and we once had a conversation about what would happen if the unstoppable cannonball hit the unmovable wall. You know, one summer I was working on a landscaping crew alongside another university student and he wanted to pick up that very conversation. And a truck driver heard that conversation. He said, 
<laughs> I know what would happen if an unstoppable cannonball hit an immovable wall. He said, you get a terrible racket, there'd be a mountain of rubble to clean up. And I thought to myself, that sounds about right. And how come my philosophy prof didn't mention that? But here's an easier question, a question for Christian believers in the first century and for us today. What happens when God's immeasurable power hits the power of the demonic world? God's incomparably great power is unstoppable. It's raw brute strength that levels obstacles. Now, since Paul has no earthly comparison for God's power, he must use a different picture to help us to see what God's power is actually like. Notice the last half of verse 19, according to the working of his great might. Now, if you think about that phrase, you might come to the conclusion that any power, no matter if it comes from a human being or a bit of technology or a demon or even from Satan himself, is according to the working of the might from wherever that power comes. All power is in accordance with the might of the one using it. Imagine that a police officer comes and arrests you. He says, I'm taking you to prison. And you might want to respond, I don't want to go to prison. So then I have no intention of complying with your demand. You size up the police officer who's come to arrest you and you come to a conclusion. Well, I think in a fight, I can win the day. He doesn't have the power to do what he intends. But then, of course, the police officer has more power than you can imagine. He not only has physical strength, he also has a sidearm. And should all that fail, he is an entire police force made up of many, many police officers who will engage with him, all taking his side. Even if you have friends, I'm willing to bet his gang is a lot larger and more powerful than your gang. No matter how much you ratchet up your power, his power to arrest is in accordance with his might or his resources. So use that example. Ask yourself what you know about God. See, theologians like the word omnipotent. Omnipotent is a word that refers to power, and it's a power unique to God. Omnipotence means that God has the power to do whatever he wills. Theologians often speak about what they call God's attributes of purpose, and there are three of them. First is the attribute of God's will, in which God approves of things and determines to bring them about. Second is God's freedom, in which God is not restrained by outside circumstances. See, unlike us, When things change, we realize what Mick Jagger sang about when he sang, you can't always get what you want. But God's not like that. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God always gets what he wants. And how is that possible? Well, it's possible because of God's omnipotence. That is, that God has no measure or that he has no limitations on his power. Whatever his holy will dictates, God is able to do. Genesis 18, 14 asks a rhetorical question. It asks, is anything too hard for the Lord? Indeed, that's it. And that gets us back to Ephesians 1, 19b, that God's power is directed towards us who believe in Christ. How much power is directed towards us? Well, it says, according to the working of his great might. Ah, yes, omnipotence. So let's move to verse 20 which Paul gives us the first example of that power. 20a says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So slow down and observe the word worked. That he, that is God the Father, worked, says Paul. Other translations say he exerted. The word means to cause something to be. God's power is such that his power caused the resurrection of Jesus to come into being. That's to say, when thinking about the power of God, think about the death of Jesus. 
See, as we know, whether it's the death of Jesus or the death of every human being, we would think that there is no greater power than death. There's an old expression, there are two certainties in life, death and taxes. But let me say, it is possible to avoid taxes, but it is not possible to avoid death. Do you want a power in this world? I'll give you one. It's the power that humbles the mightiest and the proudest of all men. Death comes to the lowliest and it comes to the exalted. Sometimes we depict death with a scythe in his hand. And in modern times, you know, think of death as a massive mower. Death mows everyone down. That's power. But an empty tomb, well, there God demonstrates he's the one who mows death down. Death, yes, death itself trembles at the empty tomb and is brought to its knees. Such is the power of God. But Paul's not done speaking about the power of God. Let's continue to read 20b to 21. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. See, not only did the power of God raise Christ from the dead, but the power of God seated Christ at the right hand of God the Father. Now start with the right hand. That's an image. You might, for instance, think about that from the Psalms. Psalm 20, verse 6. It's a Psalm of King David. It says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. See, the right hand was often thought of as the hand of the warrior, who, since most people are right-handed, is the hand in which a warrior wields a weapon in warfare. It's the hand of strength. It's the hand by which his opponents are vanquished. So that's the image of God's right hand. When God bears his right hand, his enemies fall before him. All right, take it one step further. Our passage says that in God the Father's omnipotent power, he has seated Christ the Son at his right hand. Now, now stop, because if you know your Bible, that's going to sound familiar, doesn't it? You remember Jesus? He's being tried before the Sanhedrin, the group that would eventually put him to death. They're searching around for a sufficient reason to condemn him. So here I'm reading Matthew 26, verses 63 to 65. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. So why did the high priest think that was blasphemy? Well, because in his thinking, no one could be seated at the right hand of God the Father. For to be seated there was to be equal with God, having all the power of God the Father. And that's exactly what Jesus claimed would happen. And Paul says, that is what happened. The Father was not only raising Jesus from the dead, but that he enthroned him in the place of immeasurable power. And just in case you don't get that, Paul then talks about the kinds of powers that impress us. He uses the word rule, and he might be thinking of earthly rulers, rulers in the heavenly realm. Then the word authority, that refers to rule that has the power to act. Then the word power, and then finally the word dominion, which comes from the root to dominate. See, from all these forms of power, we're familiar with them. And Paul says, don't you see that when Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father, his power to act is far greater, infinitely greater, so great that any form of power, whether on earth, whether in the realm of human politics, whether military power, whether it's technological power, or whether that power is in the demonic realm, you know, that realm that incites human beings 
to far greater evil than they could ever conceive on their own, all those forms of power are humbled before Christ. They're humbled even as death was humbled at his empty tomb. So again, dear Christian, what are you afraid of? Paul's still not done. Look at verses 22 to 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, here we come to the point. Do you know who's the head of the church? Did you know that the church is the body of Christ? And so the church is the object of Christ's love. He died for the church. And not only did he die for the church, he's the head. He's the leader of the church. He's the one who has expressed unity and solidarity with his church. And furthermore, the church is the fullness of him. That is, he inhabits his church and the church exemplifies him. When Christians contemplate their spiritual blessings, they should contemplate the blessings of the power of our Savior who not only gave himself for us and his church, but who defends and protects and guides and will usher us to our eternal reward. Again, I ask you, my dear Christian friend, what are you afraid of? Thanks so much, John. You know, I think it's safe to say we live in a, a growing culture of fear. So much seems out of our control. But what should the response or outlook be of the follower of Jesus? Well, I think we need to gain confidence in Jesus. I mean, do we really remember who he is? That he is Lord of heaven and earth. I, I think it's the forgetfulness. You know, I, I, I did read that book years ago, Cinderella with Amnesia. <laughs> I don't remember a thing about the book. I just remember the title. You know, how can Cinderella ever gain amnesia after what she has seen? How can we, who have come to believe in Christ, ever forget what he has given us? So, you know, these are the things that we have to remember, not just what he's given us, but who it is that has given us these things. So a Christ will rule in the end of the day over every authority, power, and dominion, over every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Consider that. Uh, let, it, let it just permeate your being. Rejoice in that. Give thanks to that. And in the end of the day, our, our vision of the future will be transformed into optimism. Uh, we will have hope where others have none. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Empowered Living, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Today, there are 1.6 billion websites on how to get rich quick. I'm, I'm only joking. You know, but our TVs promise that a newer car, a colder drink, or a bigger house will be just the ticket to bring joy. But if money were the key to happiness, we'd be the happiest culture in history. Instead, we access more psychologists, lawyers, and antidepressants than any previous generation. So what makes life rich? Well, this month, Phil Calloway uncovers some answers in the new Laugh Again booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich. Money is a blessing when held in our hands, but never in our hearts. To request your copy of the booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich, as our free gift during the month of May, visit us online at backtothebible.ca 
or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.